0: one of us, one of us. What does it mean to be one of the group, accepted, supported, or at least not ostracized? What conversely does it mean to be an outsider to that group, shunned and neglected or worse, targeted? Before we could successfully answer the question of what it means to be part of or apart from the group, we first would have to determine what group we're talking about. You could be an outsider to a group of outsiders rejected by a collection of, quote unquote, rejects the term that I use to open this episode, one of us has specific meaning to horror fans, at least those who are interested in horror film history, and have seen the film Freaks. Todd Browning's legendary film was so controversial in 1932 that it effectively ended his career, and it centered on an ostracized group of people, carnival quote-unquote freaks, people with physical deformities who have formed a very tight and very protective community within the traveling sideshow that they perform for. When an outsider, a quote-unquote normal person, marries into that group, she is initially welcomed by them at the wedding ceremony, hence the one-of-us chant, we accept her, we accept her, one of us, one of us. Later, however, when the group discovers that the marriage was set up for murderously duplicitous reasons, They take revenge on her in a way that changes the meaning of one of us into something gruesomely literal. And if you've seen it, you can probably understand why people in 1932 found it so shocking. But Freaks was hardly the first horror film to take such an impressively layered approach to our potential fear of being the outsider. Just a year earlier, Fritz Lang's M experimented with how much sympathy can be garnered for a particularly heinous type of human devil. The child murderer portrayed by Peter Lorre, like child murderers often in real life, is an outsider even among other criminals who find him so deplorable that they come together to capture him, try him, and attempt to execute him. That same year also brought us the most famous adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And with that being generally considered the original science fiction novel, and thus the original science fiction horror novel, that makes Frankenstein's creature the original science fiction horror outsider, the product of an experiment gone wrong, something that would be revisited within the genre time and time again in the two centuries that have since passed. The novel and its adaptation give us two different takes on how fear of being the outsider and fear of the outsider can commingle which is similarly explored in the aforementioned freaks and fritz lang's m in this episode i intend to focus on fear of being the outsider but i can't help but dip a toe into fear of the outsider considering what often happens in horror and even other genres when an outsider feels they have been pushed too far or even when an outsider makes a misguided attempt to fit in in the novel Frankenstein's monster develops intelligence and becomes resentful and vengeful in the 1931 film adaptation he is much more innocent purely reactive and unaware of what he's doing a sort of precursor to Lenny from of mice and men both are misunderstood mentally disabled individuals who kill someone by mistake while trying to engage in an activity that should be gentle meanwhile the character in Mary Shelley's original creation turns into a calculated and deliberate killer perhaps the second most famous example of an outsider pushed too far in the horror genre follows somewhat similar paths as these two different versions of frankenstein's creature carrie white in stephen king's novel enraged after her prom night humiliation is fully aware of what she's doing when she kills everyone inside the gym and then goes on to cause mass destruction throughout the town as well in de palma's adaptation Carrie enters a hallucinatory trance-like state in which her powers seem to have more control over her than she has over them. Carrie also provides an example of someone being an outsider even within their own community. And this, of course, occurs in real life as well, just as being deemed an outsider because you come from a place that is literally outside the physical location of the community can also occur. In either case, the consequences of being treated as different and apart from the group can be far more drastic than loneliness or even conventional bullying. People have, for instance, been convicted of crimes that they are now known not to have committed in no small part simply because they were not members of the community. This is sometimes a product of prejudice, convenience, or both. Those who are short on confidence or equity within a community can incur innocently the biases of the locals and the attentions of the law enforcement, whether they are lazy or simply stumped in regard to solving a crime. For example, from 1976 to 1982, prosecutors and law enforcement in Dallas managed to convict three different people in eventually high-profile cases of three crimes that they did not commit. The most famous of these became the subject of the important and influential documentary The Thin Blue Line. In that documentary, the following was said of Randall Dale Adams, the man who was convicted wrongly of murdering a police officer. That comes from the powerful closing moments of the documentary where the actual murderer confesses to the crime and gives his opinion that the only reason why Randall is in prison is because he was an outsider. Now that's obviously a little self-serving as it passes the buck on the blame that should belong to him for having falsely accused Randall in the first place to say nothing of having committed a murder. That, however, does not completely invalidate the point being made. Five years before the release of the Thin Blue Line, another piece of investigative media exonerated another man falsely accused and convicted of a violent crime in Dallas. The Peabody Award-winning 60 Minutes episode, Lionel Jeter's in Jail, brought national attention to a case in which the man sitting in prison, Linnell Jeter, for armed robbery was actually found to have been at work, which was corroborated by multiple co-workers at the time the robbery took place. Despite the impossibility of him having committed the crime, he still became the sole target of law enforcement and eventual prosecution. So how could this have happened? Well, in addition to racial biases that more than likely factored into it, Linnell was also not a Dallas native. One reason why he came to the police's attention in the first place was that he still had out-of-state tags on his car. In 1989, 60 Minutes once again shone a light on a miscarriage of justice from Dallas, Texas, this time a robbery homicide. But like the previous episode, also a situation where the person serving time was at work when the crime was committed. Joyce Ann Brown, lacking the ability to either clone herself or teleport, or the super speed necessary for her to have actually been where they said she was, obviously was innocent. Nonetheless, she was found guilty. She became the primary suspect because she happened to share a name with the person who rented the getaway vehicle. The other Joyce Ann Brown was actually from Colorado, which seems to belie the position that outsiders are more susceptible to this kind of injustice. After all, the authorities went with the local woman in this circumstance. But as I pointed out with Carrie, you don't have to be from out of town to be treated as the other. Joyce Ann Brown from Dallas had previously been a prostitute. That, coupled with the convenience of her being local, made her an easier target for these particular authorities. Now, these are just a few very specific examples from a limited time frame from one city in the United States. We could find innumerable other instances of outsiders being mistreated in all corners of the world from all throughout history. Being the one who does not belong, or among those who do not belong, can be very scary. In recent horror history, we had the famous example from Jordan Peele's Get Out. But that story, powerful and influential as it was does not involve directly a threat from law enforcement, at least not in the version that was released in theaters. So, in an effort to maintain the theme that it seems I've been setting up for several minutes, we're going to venture a little bit outside of the horror genre. Although, in my opinion, just about any story that deals with some kind of life-or-death conflict has a little bit of horror in it. Just about every action movie I've seen has a minor horror story somewhere buried in it. We're going to be going into the action genre here, where once upon a time, a small town police force pushed an outsider too far. And yes, that outsider could have just walked away. But in the novel version, he had experienced this 15 times before and he'd had enough. In the movie version, well, all John Rambo wanted to do was get something to eat. It has been nearly 40 years since john rambo first appeared on screens and almost 50 years since he appeared on the page more than enough time for most people to either never have been familiar with how he got his beginning or to have forgotten about first blood and who john rambo was first unleashed against when he was introduced to the world David Morrell introduced John Rambo as, quote, just some nothing kid for all anybody knew, end quote. Of course, he was a lot more than that. He was a Green Beret and war hero, a former POW, and a man capable of terrorizing an entire small town when he's been pushed too far. In both the novel and film adaptation, Rambo's rage against the small town begins with an encounter with the local law enforcement, the local head of authority. And in the book... Police Chief Will Teasel is not as unrepentantly ugly as he is in the film, where he's uh, turned into a sheriff, incidentally, and played wonderfully by Brian Dennehy. In the novel, though, we get a lot more time with Teasel. We get several chapters from his perspective, and it amplifies a sort of horror element in that book. It's no wonder that Stephen King used to use this as a textbook when he taught English in school. And Rambo's climactic, destructive, explosive one-person campaign against the town certainly feels like it's echoed at least a little bit in King's debut, Carrie, which came out a couple of years later. But back to Teasel. He identifies Rambo as a potential vagabond and a troublemaker. Based in no small part on his appearance, Rambo is long-haired. He's bearded. He's bedraggled. He's unkempt. He's passing through town on foot, and Teasel wants him to get out of town as quickly as possible. In the book, things escalate between Teasel and Rambo a little more slowly, as they have multiple confrontations where Teasel tries to get Rambo out of town, and John, having been pushed too far 15 times before when he's encountered this kind of scenario, has had enough, and he decides this time, no, I'm just going to turn around, come right back to town every single time. Teasel tries to drop me off and tells me never to come back. Eventually, of course, he gets arrested, charged, jailed, just as it is in the film, same way in the original novel. Except it's a little less hostile in the novel. But nonetheless, when they come at him with sharp implements, with scissors and a razor, it brings a flashback to Jean of his time as a POW and the torture that he endured there. And that's when he snaps, same as it is in the film, as it is in the novel. Except for in the novel, it's a little bit more graphic and brutal john seizes the razor slices open one of the deputy's stomachs disembowels him on the spot then injures several others rather brutally and efficiently before making his escape completely nude in the novel as opposed to uh, just wearing the rags that he came in with in the uh, in the film and not long after that we get an extended amount of time with teasel and his men being led into an ambush unwittingly in the woods, in the forest, and in the hills of uh, Kentucky in the book, as opposed to Washington in the film. And it's from there that the novel almost turns into a kind of dark, grim wish fulfillment from an outsider's perspective. It's kind of like the uh, anti-vigilante, sort of a, a counterpoint to Death Wish. It's a story about a man who has just decided, just because I look like an outcast... I'm not going to any longer just allow myself to be treated like an outcast. And he, of course, is equipped with the uh, early version of a particular set of skills that, of course, became famous, more famous as a phrase in the movie Taken. But the original person, maybe not quite the original, but one of the originators, one of the prototypes for that sort of thing as it became more uh, influential in later action movies, is John Rambo. And in the 1972 novel, of course, he is kind of a a survivalist menace to all of these completely overmatched, even though they outnumber him greatly, completely overmatched locals, whether it's the local law enforcement, local uh, citizens and civilians who believe that they can help, even when it comes to uh, members of the state police and eventually even the National Guard. None of these people can match up with this uh, special forces trained elite soldier, super soldier, who has taken it upon himself to wage a one-man war against Teasel and, by extension, anybody associated with him at all. You're not necessarily meant to nakedly root for Rambo in the novel. You're supposed to sympathize with him to a certain degree, but also recognize that he plays a little bit of a part in this escalating as well. That changes, of course, to a degree in the film adaptation, where, again, yes, he could have walked away, but again, also... Brian Dennehy's version of Teasel is a lot more belligerent, more openly villainous and hostile toward this outsider simply for no other reason than the fact that he wants to keep his town the way it is. He likes it boring, quote unquote, as he puts it. And he, you know, believes that this person that's passing through is just going to eventually cause some kind of havoc. And it ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy, of course, if he lets John just get his burger and move on john who's recently grieving on top of everything else he's been through he has ptsd he has just tried to in the film visit one of his old uh friends from the military and found out that that person passed away in no small part because of something he was exposed to by the u.s military in fact not, not in no small part that's an understatement directly because of uh, his exposure to Agent orange while he was out in the field so john is going through all of this all he wants to do is pass through town in peace Maybe stop, get himself something to eat. Teasel agitates him, antagonizes him, harasses and arrests him, and sets off an even worse, a a much worse version of the calamitous events that he had kind of predicted would be caused if this man stayed in town. He thinks this guy is going to do something, commit some kind of crime unless I get him out of here. Well, his attempt to get him out of there escalates things from crime to really just total warfare taking over his town and again for anyone who's ever felt like an outsider who's ever felt like the people in charge whether they're literal authority figures such as law enforcement or whether it's uh, just a clique or crew in uh, the place that you live in and they're the ones that are telling you no you need to stay on the outskirts you need to be set aside or worse We're going to bring you under our thumb. We're going to bring you inside, not into the fold where you're accepted, but in here where we can control you, where we can lock you up, where we can trap you, cage you, even try to cut your hair, change your appearance, uh, taunt you, dehumanize you. All of these things, if you've ever felt like you're the person who's experienced that, then the novel especially, and, well, I guess the novel especially from a, a, a body count perspective rather darkly, and the movie, more so from a uh, moralistic perspective, both of these can, again, be sort of a, a uh, ha- have a cathartic element to them. They again are a little bit of grim wish fulfillment. What if I had that ability? What if I could just go after the people who think they know so much better? And, of course, nowadays we live in a society where uh, sometimes people act out like this. Um, act out, God, that's a grotesque understatement, isn't it? Um, sometimes people commit horrible, heinous acts of violence against masses when maybe they feel like they've been disenfranchised or just because they have a glut of hatred in their hearts. That's also the case in a lot of these uh, tragic circumstances. John Rambo, of course, is very different. He doesn't pick a fight with ordinary people. In fact, the first civilians that he directly encounters, while he does uh, make it known to them that he can and will attempt to kill them if uh, it comes to that. He gives them the chance to walk away. And when another outsider comes into the story in the novel, Troutman, when he arrives in order to try to fix things, he makes it known to Teasel that Rambo is waging this war against him in particular because he recognized that Teasel is also a war veteran. Teasel served in Korea and and has the medals for it. And Rambo identified that earlier in one of their encounters. So, Rambo thinks he's fighting against someone, in particular Teasel, who is on his level playing field. He's not uh, shooting at unarmed people. He's not going after somebody he believes he has an easy advantage over. He actually expects Teasel to be somewhat of a match for him. And of course, that also amplifies some of the horror in the novel because Teasel is decades by then removed from his service in korea and he's out of practice and he's been the police chief for this small town he's not equipped right now to fight this kind of of impromptu guerrilla warfare that rambo is waging on him in a personal fight and even though he takes it personally because rambo makes it personal by killing people he directly knows and humiliating him in a fashion He also is struggling to find the courage throughout and is admittedly scared, self-admittedly scared throughout, of what this man is capable of and how far he's willing to go. But ultimately, of course, Rambo can only go so far. Eventually, he is going to be found, he is going to be killed, and even he knows this. And so even as this plays out as a horrific revenge fantasy, it has an inevitable conclusion. Because Rambo's utter outsider status means he's essentially friendless. He has no allies. He has no place to call home. He has no safe haven that he can really go to. He's always going to be hunted. He's always going to be pursued, especially after all that he's done. First in sort of a reactive defense, even if it's an overreaction, you know, one could one could argue. Um, nonetheless, it's a reactive defense to the things done unto him after that the consequence of that is that he's never going to find peace and the odds of him finding that peace even before all this madness started were already very slim again in the film in the beginning he's trying to find and catch up with one of his old military friends and he finds out that that man is dead just one more thing that isolates him further from the rest of the world He's been discharged from the military. He comes home to a country that largely feels disdain for the war he fought and suffered through. And in his famous monologue at the end of the film, he even mentions that while he was in the service while he was there, he was in charge of million dollar equipment. But now back home, he can't even get a job parking cars. So it's not like corporate America or any of the the big businessmen or even small businessmen are giving him any assistance. He has no allies. And then. Here comes this cop who wants to run him out of town just because of the way he looks, despite the fact that they actually should share some kinship, both being veterans. Even the one person who actually tries to come to his aid, to a certain degree, Troutman, can only do so much. And while in the film they have a personal relationship, in the novel, Troutman's just a man who trained the men who trained Rambo. So there's not even that direct connection there, direct kinship, again, Another degree of separation between Rambo and anything he can have a meaningful, worthwhile, personal connection with in society. John feels he can't trust anyone, not even those who are ostensibly supposed to be there to protect and defend and serve and heal. And it is important to remember that such individuals did cause John to lash out initially by making him remember and in his mind, re-experience something that none of them had ever been through. But let's briefly go back to Troutman, because I believe he provides a satisfying segue, at least in my opinion for a different type of fear that can accompany being the outsider. Because again, he is an outsider to this small town. And sometimes being the outsider in one of these circumstances means you are saddled with additional responsibility. You're the only person with that unique perspective or who is divorced from the built-in prejudices of having grown up in a certain area or the built-in proclivities and blind spots that can come with being a member of certain groups. So when that group is in trouble, they may look to an outsider for that help. Even if the outsider does not want it and did not sign up for it, they may still be placed in the role of playing the hero. And while we like to think of our heroes as eternally brave and immune to being afraid, we know that the truth is something different, even in works of fiction and another iconic work from the 70s features not just one, but three different types of outcasts and outsiders who all have to band together, get the locals to see the light of reason, and conquer their individual fears to kill a great white shark for the people of Amity Island. Chief Brody is not a newcomer to Amity Island in Peter Benchley's original novel, Jaws. Neither for that matter is Hooper, who is returning to familiar territory, having gone to high school in the area. Also in the novel, as many people know, Hooper and Brody's wife Ellen have an affair, which results in Hooper and Brody actually getting into a fight with one another on the Orca at one point. Additionally, there was a superfluous Mafia subplot, and Quint's backstory didn't have any connection to the USS Indianapolis whatsoever, which is something now that is considered intrinsic to his character. All of which to say, yes, I'm going to be setting aside Peter Benchley's novel while discussing this and focusing entirely on Steven Spielberg's legendary film adaptation, in which Chief Brody was originally a cop from New York City who wanted to move his family to the considerably more idyllic and peaceful conditions of Amity Island. He's been there for less than a year. In fact, this is his first summer on the job when the events of the film take place. Therefore, he is unaware of how seemingly sacred and essential the summer tourist season is to the islanders. It's so essential that they are quick to push the denial button when swimmers off the shore start showing up dead from great white shark bites. Brody, being the outsider though, is a little more clear minded about these things. He has a uh, initial lack of support though that undermines any chance he really has of getting a jump on the situation. That and the fact that he doesn't really know a damn thing about shark hunting. What he does know is that he doesn't know enough about sharks to do this on his own, which is important. In this situation, being the outsider helps him maintain full acceptance of the fact that he's not an expert. Unlike some of the uh, local fishermen who uh, turn into amateur shark hunters as the film goes on, and they scoff at an actual expert's opinion that they should do something as simple as just, you know, measure the bite radius on the shark that they've caught to verify that the one they've caught is the actual killer shark, the actual culprit, not just some other shark in the sea as if there's only one shark potentially out there in the in the ocean. Imagine that. Likewise, the mayor refuses to do just a simple autopsy, at least in the moment when it would be, a, you know, when, when time seems to be of the essence given the bodies that are piling up seemingly on a regular basis at this point. The second critical thing that Brody understands is that just pretending a shark isn't out there killing people isn't going to stop people from getting killed by the shark that is in fact actually out there. Denial sometimes is an easier trap to fall into when you're one of the crowd. If you're a welcome member of a system that is already working in your favor or at least uh, keeps you comfortable The revelation of anything that would disrupt that system might be something you want to ignore. Brody has far less incentive to ignore the evidence that a massive great white is out there eating people, someone with a job dependent on tourism. They're a lot more likely to convince themselves that those bodies were chewed up in boating accidents or by a coral reef or maybe even by, yes, Jack the Ripper. And that same lack of denial also applies to Hooper, the ignored scientific expert. He's a character who commonly exists in fiction, the ignored expert. Unfortunately, they also appear frequently in real life as well. He's an outsider here on two fronts. Not only is he from out of town, but he's also a brain. He's he's the guy that's got all that book learning. He's the egghead, you know, that that standard kind of character trope and type. He knows about a specific subject that most of the locals don't really identify with even though it's directly related to their livelihoods, and yet they also feel that because it's directly related to their livelihoods, they know more than the guy who spent his whole life studying it. And that kind of segues us into Quint, who famously berates Hooper for uh having, you know, the hands of a non working man, the hands of a scholar, and and a guy who's been uh studying and been in a classroom all his life. And of course Hooper replies that he doesn't need this working class hero crap, but He and Quint actually end up bonding later because they are both in the same category as well as Brody, the outsider category. They're not actually part of the collective of the town, even though Quint himself is an actual local. But Quint, similar to Hooper, is also a bit of an ignored expert, even though his expertise comes more from direct experience as opposed to uh, scholarly learning still. The people in town know him, but... It's not like they ran to him immediately knowing and recognizing, hey, this is the guy who uh, has experience maybe with shark hunting, um, declares himself a shark hunter. He's the guy who we can trust to do this. He has set himself apart from the town as well. And, you know, that's a deliberate act on his part. And so the, the town in turn has shunned him at least to that degree to where they would not immediately approach him about this. And he, in turn, again, doesn't even give the town any kind of a local discount or anything when it comes to capturing this animal that is out here killing people, that has killed some of their children, uh, their friends, neighbors, etc., and is a, an ongoing threat to their very livelihood and the, and the economy of the community. He has them hostage to a certain degree into, in terms of what he can charge them for capturing this killer shark. And even beyond that, he's also an outsider in the sense of what he's actually been through. So beyond his interactions with his fellow islanders, even as it pertains to just the world at large, he's a man who has survived something that extraordinarily few other people have ever been through. Even among the, you know, comparatively small and tragic fraternity of of people who have survived a shipwreck during warfare, no less, he's part of the tinier subset of that group. That has also had to deal with a feeding frenzy from a a team of sharks. And, you know, so far as we know, pretty much that consists of him and any other survivors from the Indianapolis. So Quint, along with Brody and Hooper, inherits the responsibility of eventually tracking and killing the Great White that is terrorizing Amity. And they're all eventually then confronted with a horrifying scenario, not just in general, like their their shared experience in that regard, but specific horrifying scenarios that are related particularly to their own experiences and fears and uh, character traits. Quint, for example, shows no fear at all until the moment he's actually staring down at the black-eyed nightmare that has Plagued and motivated him since his time on the Indianapolis. After that, at, at that point, he is understandably terrified. That moment when he is sinking, sliding down into the shark's mouth and staring down at that, he loses that aura of kind of uh, invincibility and grit and that kind of classic masculine courage that he has exhibited as the hunter throughout this entire ordeal. At that point, he becomes enveloped by his fear, even as he continues to fight against the shark as it's, you know, swallowing and and devouring his lower half. And even, you know, eating his lower half, or as far as, you know, as we see, the last we see of Quint, with his legs in the shark's mouth, that is a callback to the fate of his friend from the Indianapolis, Herbie Robinson, when he tells that story earlier on the orca about Herbie Robinson and how he was bobbing up in the water and come to find out his lower half had been entirely eaten away. This is kind of echoed in, in the sense of how we last see Quint before he sinks beneath the waters and into the ocean in the shark's mouth, eaten up at that point. For Hooper, for his part, he ends up in the shark cage, kind of the, the place for a scientist, uh, a Jacques Cousteau, kind of a surrogate or expy or for the movie, even though you know he's not you know obviously putting on a french accent or anything like that but he is the oceanographer he's the ocean expert the the person who is uh, schooled on marine life etc and so he ends up in the shark cage and as he's in the shark cage he's you know but before he's lowered at that point he's so terrified he can't even muster any spit to clear his goggles and even earlier in earlier than that, when he is doing further underwater exploration in the film. He's the one who uh, comes across the uh, floating head in the water of somebody who is dismembered. And, you know, again, another victim of the shark attack, but the first big, crazy jump scare of the movie, one of the most famous jump scares of the movie, that's Hooper suffering that while doing something that is in the realm of his expertise he is partaking in scientific observation when he has his first encounter with death and mortal terror and then there's Chief Brody the least experienced member of the Orca the least qualified member of the crew and the man who is deathly afraid of the sea he ends up being the last man left on the sinking ship faced with the perils of the sea as the ship lowers into the water and he's clinging to the mast and as far as he knows and maybe he's not even thinking about this at this point but as far as he would know both hooper and quint are dead both of the men that are more qualified more uh comfortable with the water they're already dead so you know what chance does he have and he's left desperately trying to avoid at this point being killed by what is in the thing that he is deathly afraid of each man has, again, that individual characteristic or individual fear. And these are all things that separate them from the group. Just like for every one of us, our own individual fears and characteristics can make us feel isolated from a group or even a subgroup that we would otherwise be a part of or maybe desire to be a part of. And then there's something else for each one of them that sets them apart The characteristic that one way or another eventually compels them to be part of this crew that is going to help and rescue a community that surely is not grateful enough for what they're doing for them. For Brody, it could be, and it seems to be, his commitment to legitimately uphold the tenets of protect and serve. This is what he feels he is there for, and his goal within Amity, regardless of all the things that stymie his efforts. Prior to eventually him ending up on the orca, and for Hooper, it is his you know desire to know and his commitment to uh, the scientific approach, and his realization that he's the at least to him his realization that he's the one learned expert available to this group of people that can help them out in this circumstance, and then of course there's Quint who is motivated essentially by you know personal desires for revenge um, to get back at this thing that is a relative to that which terrorized him when his ship sank in the Pacific all those years ago. This is sometimes the product of being an outsider you end up like this trio of men in Jaws or like Kurosawa's Seven Samurai or like Ben in Night of the Living Dead who's just a man passing through the area when all hell breaks loose. Or like Ripley in Aliens, who is essentially a woman uh, displaced in time in the second film, and who is an outsider to the marines that she is uh, accompanying on this mission, and who also due to her previous experience is distrustful of the android who joins the mission, and is also because of her previous experience the only person who really respects what the alien is capable of before everyone else has their first encounter with the hive of aliens. These are just a few famous fictional examples, and there are plenty others that we could find. And that can be one of the frightening things about being an outsider, is feeling like you're the only person who can help in any given dire situation, and also recognizing that you're probably not going to reap any benefits from providing that help. You might not even get a thank you, and you might end up even being scapegoated as somehow being the source of the threat, or connected to it in some manner, just because you're the only person who recognized how to handle it best. Many of us know what it's like to be an outsider, at least at some point in our lives, in one way or another. And we have lived with that fear and concern that the best to come of being an outsider is to be ignored, as opposed to the worst thing to come of it, which is to be targeted. There's also the fear of what an outsider can turn you into, how it can make you feel. It can make some of us perhaps want to cheer for the titular freaks at the end of Todd Browning's film, even though we know what they're doing is heinous and incomprehensibly harsh in their quest for vengeance. Or it can make you wish that those who've persecuted and prosecuted the ostracized would someday feel what it's like to be on the other side of that, whether they were targeting uh, marginalized and terrorized groups of people, entire ethnicities or races, or just specific individuals such as Joyce Ann Brown. Randall Adams, Linnell Jeter. Or it might make some of us just wish on occasion that certain fictional outsiders turned heroes, somebody even as simple as oh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, would tell those who made them a pariah, but now seek help, to just go figure it out on their own. Thank you for listening to episode 5 of the Healthy Fears podcast. I'll continue talking about outsiders from a different perspective in the next episode. In the meantime, if you like what you heard, listen to some past episodes and like and subscribe. Feel free to tell a friend, too. You can also visit johnnycompton.com for a full list of my publication credits and any thoughts that I'd care to share about movies I've recently watched, books I'm reading, stories that I'd recommend, or just about anything else that crosses my mind. Until then, one way or another, try to keep your spirits up. If you're feeling like an outsider, it's even okay to feel afraid, especially if you can somehow put that fear to good use. Planning for your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen,